Businesses of all sizes have been affected by COVID-19. In response to this, Post Media Solutions has created a five-step guide aimed to help you adapt your business during this global crisis. To get this free guide, visit postmediasolutions.com forward slash adapt. We're getting a clearer picture of what happened the night Gabriel Wartman started his killing spree in Nova Scotia. At the end of nearly 12 hours, Wartman had killed 22 people before being gunned down by RCMP at a gas station north of Halifax. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. I talked with the National Post's Christopher Nardi about what sparked the murders, how Wartman evaded detection for as long as he did, and what questions remain unanswered. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your favorite shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Christopher, late last week, RCMP in Nova Scotia released a fuller picture of what happened the prior weekend that saw more than 20 people killed at the hands of Gabriel Wertman. How did this horrible tragedy start? Well, the motives and the reasons aren't exactly clear, but the RCMP did start painting a picture for us last week. And essentially, what we understand is that Wartman was at a party in his small community called Porta Peak in Nova Scotia, rural Nova Scotia. It's basically a community of about 100 people. And he was at this party with actually what I understand to be either his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend. There's seemingly unclear. Mm -hmm. And what we do understand is that he did get into a fight with this person, this now ex-girlfriend. And essentially, that fight transported itself back to his cottage, which is also in Porta Peak. Wartman is actually, in fact, lives in Halifax permanently. And what the RCMP described was that Wartman went back and there the altercation with his ex-girlfriend continued and he essentially assaulted her tied and tied her up. And that's when the shooting basically started. And one can obviously infer that this domestic violence was kind of the click that made him jump the wire and, and start you know, wanting to go on a killing rampage. It's unfortunately unclear. We don't have the whole portrait, but that is what we know. Mm-hmm. And so from the moment when he went to the house, tied his ex-partner up, assaulted her in other ways, and then basically dressed up as a cop and then went off again. So there were reports late last week that his partner or his ex-partner had managed to escape and take off into the woods. Is it clear whether Wartman had already left to go shoot all the people that he ended up killing? Or was it she escaped, he went after her, but then couldn't find her and then went and killed all those people? That's another one that seems to be very unclear. The timeline, basically, of what happened at his cottage with his ex-partner is probably part of the vaguer parts of the story. And obviously, police will uh, either already know that or will find out because you know the, the ex-partner did get away and is now collaborating with police. And she's been actually very instrumental, not only during the rampage when she did come out of the woods, but ever since then, obviously, cooperating with police to explain Wartman and his motives, which we will ultimately never know because he's dead, right? Mm-hmm. But the timeline exactly what happened at that cottage is unclear, but it seems to be implied by the police is that Wartman tied her up and assaulted her and then left to go back to the party where he was at, where he will ultimately uh, shoot seven people and kill them. 
And that's the period during which the girlfriend manages to untie herself and escape in the woods, which she will stay in until 6.30 the next morning. Wow. So we get a picture of it, like a, a man enraged, uh, assaults his partner, goes back to where he was just prior to that and kills people there. And then he decides to spread violence across swaths of Nova Scotia. What happens after he leaves that party where he's killed seven people? The majority of his murderous rampage actually happened in port peak So as I mentioned, it's a small community. It's about 100 people that live there on a permanent basis. As the RCMP described, there's one entrance, one road into and out of the community. There are no sidewalks, no streetlights. So he goes back to his party and ends up shooting and killing seven people. And the RCMP described, you know, gave a, a quick picture of a very gruesome scene where they were finding dead people in the roadways and driveways. And essentially, from that point on, he goes around and ends up committing more murders just throughout that community. So at 10.26 p.m., the RCMP gets 911 calls, one of which was from a gentleman, a man who had called. He'd been shot, and he ultimately survived, but he'd been shot while he was just walking in the street. He says, a cop, what looked like a cop car, pulled up to me, rolled down the window, and shot him, and then drove off. So the police first received this call for what they thought was just a, a suspect and a shooting. They show up to Portapeak, and basically what they in fact find is 13 dead people, uh, a couple others that were injured in shooting, and more than a few houses that were on fire. And basically arson, including Wartman's home that he himself set ablaze. So it's really just this horrifying scene that rural Nova Scotia RCMP show up to, where they think they're responding to, you know, one shooting and then end up showing up to a mass shooting and then multiple homes in this community that, again, is very small, that are on fire. And they have to figure out what's going on and where the suspect is in this horrifying scene at, you know, almost 11 p.m. at that point. So it's late on a Saturday night. They have just a horrific crime scene. How soon till they find out that this has spread outside of the community? That's the interesting part of the story, Dave, because it actually takes them quite a while. I spoke to an, an expert for this, uh, a former uh, Toronto uh, detective uh, who's now retired, but he's a specialist in investigations. And he was telling me what one does in a procedure like this, and this is what the RCMP uh, did, is that as soon as you find a scene like this, your first priority is to set up a perimeter. Mm -hmm. And so they've cordoned off what the RCMP explained was a two-square-kilometer perimeter in Porta Peak. And... Again, you know, I mentioned this before, but there's only one entrance and one exit to this community by road. So when they shut that off, as well as everything, around, you know, this two-kilometer cordon around, they are under the belief that they have the suspect in this area. And it's only until, at the, I think, the first click that made them realize that he wasn't there anymore was the next morning around 6.30 when the ex-partner comes out of the woods, she calls 911, they show her, and then she's the one that reveals to them that he is, in fact, in a mock police car that is unplated, so obviously it's a legal vehicle, and he has an RCMP uniform, or at least a fake cop uniform. That's, I think, when you, they start realizing, oh my goodness, he might have gotten out. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit later, they also get reports of a car, someone driving through a field to get out. And that's where they start suspecting, oh my goodness, he might have left. 
But the actual moment when they realize for sure that he is gone is about 9.30-ish the following morning when they get a call because there had been another shooting about 43 kilometers north of port peak And that's when they realize, oh my goodness, he got out and there's almost this 12-hour span basically where he was AWOL. They don't know what he did. And then he started shooting again quite outside of port peak yeah, and he, he he takes it to, I believe, a community called Wentworth? Yes. How many people were killed there? Beyond the 22 victims, excluding himself, there are actually a few people that were uh, shot and injured but not killed. There seems to be only a shooting in Wentworth that was, that was an injury. And then they kind of just quickly happen right one after the other in the subsequent. Because between 9.35 and the moment where he is killed at 11.26, there are another nine people that are shot and killed. But then there are a couple additional victims that were just injured. But at that moment at 9.36, they get their first report for a shooting. Mm-hmm. And then quickly after, for example, they get another call uh, for this woman called Lillian Heislop or Hislop. I'm sorry, I'm not entirely sure to pronounce it, but who was basically just out for her daily walk. He drove by her, saw her, shot her, killed her, and then continued on his route. And so we have a long span after the initial mass killing of 13 people in Porta Peak. There's a shooting in Wentworth, and then he starts heading south towards Halifax before he's ultimately stopped and killed by RCMP gunfire. But what happens in that that short period? You mentioned that there are multiple other people who are killed. Where does he wind up in kind of a standoff with RCMP? As you said, he continues essentially southbound. He seems to be heading back towards Halifax, which, as I mentioned earlier, is where his primary residence was. And he keeps on driving down, down, shooting stopping people and this is this is what particularly horrified me uh dave honestly during the press conference he was obviously in that mock police car and he seemed to enjoy just driving up to cars that were also on the road turning on his cop cars pulling people over as a pre you know obviously acting like a real cop Mm -hmm. so people would obviously stop by on the side of the road he'd get out of the car go up to them and kill them And it happened at least twice in a quick succession where he just gratuitously saw people in cars who just happened to be driving at the wrong place at the wrong time, stopping on the side of the road because they, you know, doing the right thing because they think a cop is stopping them to ultimately be gruesomely murdered. Wow. And so he continues on this route south. In the meantime, of course, he murders an RCMP officer. Then someone else drives up to him in a silver SUV, sees two comp cars on fire. Someone drives up to the scene. He murders that person, takes their silver SUV, keeps driving, goes to another friend's house or an acquaintance, someone that we know, a woman that the RCMP says he knew, gets into her house, murders her. This is when he changes his clothing. So this is when we know he took off his cop uniform. And so about now, now we're at about somewhere between 11 a.m. and 11.26 a.m., which is when he dies. So basically, shortly before he dies, he changed his clothes and then takes uh, Gina Goulet, who is this woman that he knew, takes her car, uh, a red Mazda 3, gets into it, presumably doesn't have enough gas or doesn't you know have enough gas for whatever he wants to do so he drives in to refuel at an Irving big stop in a community called Enfield which is just north of Halifax and there when he stops he starts refueling and 
completely by chance, another RCMP officer, a tactical team, stop at that same Irving gas station to also refuel. And that's when they realize that Wartman is right in front of them. Wartman presumably also sees them, pulls out his gun. There's a shootout. And that's when Wartman eventually uh, obviously gets uh, dies. And that's at 11.26 a.m. on the Sunday after a completely chance encounter with cops. A lot of people watching this unfold last weekend would have presumed that, oh, they boxed him in at a gas station and tried to take him down. And so he pulled a gun and that's when the gunfire happened. But it was just luck that they caught him when they did. It was pure luck. And it's it's somewhat horrifying to think what would have happened if at that exact moment, the police who were in that vehicle didn't see the Irving didn't say, oh, well, you know what, we could use some gas, let's stop here, didn't stop in there and just completely by chance happen onto Gabriel Wartman, who just killed 22 people, because presumably he would have continued his road and very possibly continued murdering people. There were some victims whom he knew, and there were a number of victims who were completely random. Do we know how many of the people he killed were acquaintances or had involvement with him previously? It doesn't seem very clear. Puerto Peak, as I mentioned, is a small community. So presumably, obviously, he, there were the seven people at the party that he murdered that he presumably knew. And, you know, you could assume that he knew a decent amount of the 13 victims in Puerto Peak that he ended up uh, murdering. After that, basically, his route through Nova Scotia towards the south between Puerto Peak and, and Enfield, where he will die, is kind of a half and half mix of just random murders and then people that he knew. His last victim, Gina Goulet, was a woman that he knew. He walked into her house, murdered her, and took her car. Before that, he actually stopped at people's homes, and then he did kill two people that he knew uh, relatively early Sunday morning. And then he also showed up at other people's homes that he uh, at least was acquainted with. But in some cases, they didn't let him in, and that ended up saving their lives. So there were attempted murders for people he knew, but there were a decent amount of people uh, starting on Sunday morning that he murdered just because they happened to be around seemingly, seemingly with no motive, or at least no motive that we know of now. Mm -hmm. Lillian Hislop was one of them, the woman who was just walking in the street. There were the people that he stopped in his police car to then eventually just kill, as well as Constable Heidi Stevenson, who was the RCMP officer that he murdered, uh, who was pulling up to meet who she thought was her colleague, who had also been shot but not killed by Wartman. So I'd say starting on Sunday, he seems to just be indiscriminately killing people he both has been acquainted with and is intentionally going to see and people that he just happened to run into. Just a horrifying chain of events. There was talk last week of whether the RCMP adequately notified the public of Nova Scotia that this was going on. And the Mounties were using Twitter to get the word out, but there was question as to whether they should have issued a public province-wide emergency alert like you'd get on your phone during an Amber Alert. What was the RCMP's reasoning for not doing that? And have they spoken as to how they feel about that after the fact? Honestly, there's not really been an explanation as to why an emergency alert didn't go out. So this is the interesting part. So as you mentioned, the RCMP started putting out tweets warning 
uh, Nova Scotians about uh, a shooter on the loose who then they realized had a mock police car. That was Sunday morning. So the shootings had begun, as I mentioned, Saturday evening. And Saturday evening, they tweeted soon after they got their first call that they were responding to basically a firearms complaint. That's how they phrased it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Never obviously mentioning that when they arrived, said firearms complaint also involved 13 murders and a bunch of arsons. When they realized that uh, Wartman wasn't in port peak anymore is when they started tweeting out that they had uh, a man out on the loose. Uh, they tweeted out the suspect Wartman's picture. Um, and they also tweeted out a picture of the mock police vehicle that he was driving around at that point. And that was a picture that they'd received from his ex-partner when she came out of the woods at about 6.30 in the morning. And it's funny because if you go see those tweets now, you see at the moment when they were being made, the first few responses to those tweets are people saying, hey, why don't you put out an emergency alert? Why aren't you warning us all? And that question has been posed to the RCMP a lot. We know that the emergency alert system works because just 10 days previous, the province had put out an emergency alert to every cell phone and television in the province warning people not to go out during the long Easter weekend because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we know it works. Mm -hmm. And when asked, you know, multiple times last week why an alert wasn't put out, the RCMP never really gave a clear explanation except for the fact that, you know, Twitters are normal protocol. It's our normal procedure. It's just usually how we go with things. And then they also basically said they really only got the ball rolling to write up a message for an emergency alert at about 10.15 a.m. on Sunday. And if, you know, you recall the timeline I just gave, that's about an hour and a half before Wartman was killed. Mm-hmm. But also just just under 12 hours after the shooting started. And the RCMP says, we started drafting a message when the province's emergency management office reached out to us asking us if we wanted to put one out. So you understand that they hadn't actually even thought of it until that point, because it just doesn't seem to be in the culture of the place. It's not something that they've ever done before. And so obviously, there's a lot of criticism about that because, you know, a lot of the victims were just people who were out walking in the street because they hadn't seen tweets from the RCMP saying there's an active shooter situation, please stay inside. And a lot of families of victims, friends of victims and experts are now saying that alert very well could have saved lives, but it never went out because from what we understand, the RCMP didn't in fact think about it. As you mentioned early on in the interview, RCMP, they don't necessarily have a motive, although it appears that it was sparked by anger directed at his romantic partner or his past romantic partner, and it exploded from there. We may not ever get any answers about motive. Do RCMP expect it will get answers as to how Wartman was able to adequately disguise himself as an RCMP officer with possibly a real or realistic uniform and a very convincing mock vehicle? So they've started to be able to draw a portrait of how he acquired this equipment. And you understand through it all and through various media reports that Wartman was a man who had an obsession with the police. And he'd been building up this collection of police equipment, memorabilia, discarded pieces for many years, actually, from, uh, from what I've read, probably two decades And ultimately, what we found out on Friday, and this was interesting, is that Ortman didn't have one mock police car. He had three. Wow. He had two Ford Tauruses that were kitted with police equipment. Obviously, he didn't buy the cars kitted as police cars. You know, you can't just go buy a police car as is with the decals and the markings and the fake numbers. He did that himself. What he was presumably doing was 
buying retired RCMP police cars, because usually after a certain number of kilometers, they'll put them on the auction block. They'll strip them of any police equipment, and then they'll put them on the auction block, which is why, you know, Dave, we often see you know, cars like Crown Vicks, for example, rolling around, or even Ford Tauruses that sometimes look like, hey, is that a police car when you're far away in the you know highway and may or may not be following the speed limit? Mm-hmm. So he managed to get three of them. Two of them were plated vehicles that were known to the province and registered. But the one that he used for his murderous rampage was a third one. It was unplated, so that means it was obviously illegal to drive and was unknown to virtually everyone and definitely to the police. And that's why it took until 6.30 the following morning for them to realize he had that car. And that's when Wartman's ex-partner partner came out of the woods and showed them a picture. But he had kitted these cars over a decent amount of years, picking up pieces here and there from what we understand. As to the uniform, which they've retrieved, by the way, they say that the the uniform is, in fact, pieces of discarded former RCMP uniforms that they're not entirely sure where he got them from, but they're, they're old pieces mm-hmm. mixed in with equipment and, and gear from other police forces that were just kind of made to look like a general RCMP uniform. Which presumably, Dave, is very convincing. You know, if if you asked me to, you know, you put a man or a woman in a police uniform, a real RCMP one, and then one that looked like an RCMP but uniform, but is in fact just a patchwork of various police uniforms. I mean, I, I'm a reporter, and I wouldn't be able to tell probably which one was real and which one is fake, because most people don't pay that much attention to the detail of a police uniform. Yeah. You see a badge, you see the colors, and you, and, you know, and you see a number, an agent number, and you tell yourself, this must be legitimate. So he obviously worked with the fact that people didn't necessarily know what an RCMP uniform looks like exactly, was obviously a big advantage to him. Yeah. But what we do know is that he got these pieces, they were discarded um, RCMP uniforms, or discarded you know uh, pieces of of material or or clothing from other police forces that he was able to kind of build up into a replica uh, rcmp uniform yeah it's definitely it's one of those things that surely will haunt the province and the country for many years to come christopher thanks for your time dave thanks so much it was a pleasure to chat 103 is produced by carson jarama theme music by bryce hall thanks to my guest christopher nardi more from him at nationalpost.com I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.